Uh, let's read God's Word um, from a few passages. We'll read Exodus 29 and verse 29. We're looking tonight as the church as a worshipping temple. Exodus 29 and verse 29. And we'll read to the end of this chapter. It's on page 89 of the Church Bible. Verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, that in them they may be anointed and ordained. For seven days the one of his sons who is priest in his stead shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in the holy place. Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the door of the tent of meeting. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. If, when he's talking about ordination here, it's the priests being ordained. If any of the flesh of ordination or bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it and consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning, for a sweet aroma an offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then we'll read um, some verses from John's Gospel in chapter 4. It helps us understand worship. John 4, verse 19. Jesus is at the well of Sychar, and he's speaking to the women of Samaria, and they're on their own. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain in Samaria, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is 
when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then finally, we'll read uh, three verses from 1 Peter chapter 2, on page 1212. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Page 1212. First Peter 2, 4. And we come to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, that's Christ. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now moving back to Exodus, I'll be referring to that verse in First Peter again. But I'm, we're going to hover around Exodus 29. And so if you can keep Exodus 29 open. And I'm especially thinking of verse 42 in that chapter. And verse 38 to the end of the chapter. That passage is all about offering two lambs that we read about. And the center of it really is verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering through your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and this is it, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. Now there's an excellent definition of what worship is. I will meet with you and speak to you there as they offer this lamb. We've seen um, the church as visible and invisible, and we've seen that Christ is the head of the church and that the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw last week that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's in First Timothy chapter 3. So the first four weeks we're really seeing what the church is. It's visible and invisible. It has a head and a body. That's what it is. What does it do? Well, it stands for the truth and raises up the truth on a pillar we saw last Sunday evening. It proclaims the truth. It's immovable. It doesn't change the truth. And that truth is strong and stable and visible to the whole world. And the church is confident in raising up that glorious pillar with the gospel sitting on top of the pillar. The church is to speak the truth and to declare the gospel but it is to worship God. That is what the church ought to do. So I'm not even thinking yet really about evangelism or fellowship or any of those things that come later. If the church has the truth, the first thing it ought to do with it is worship God with it. The church exists for worship. It exists for other reasons too, but it first and foremost exists for worship. Moses went into Egypt, and when he asked Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, God told him the reason why. Let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. And we've been redeemed from Egypt, we've been redeemed under the Passover, and we are in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. We are the people of God. We are Israel. And the reason we were redeemed from Egypt is so that we would worship God in the wilderness. In 1 Peter 2, as we just read, he is building up a temple, a spiritual house. And the reason Christ is doing it is so that they will offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. God builds the church of Christ first and foremost so that it will offer sacrifices 
to him. Jesus said to that woman, the hour is coming when the worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So you take those together, we're redeemed out for worship, we're built up as a temple so that we'll worship God, and the Father is seeking to save sinners so that they will worship him. So even evangelism actually has as its goal ultimately worship. All church activity should have as its goal worship. Even salvation itself is not the ultimate goal that God has. He saves so that he can bring them in to his kingdom so that they can know the Lord and worship him even unto eternity. That's what really seals it for us. Um, Heaven is pictured in the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation as a place where the church is engaged in an endless worship of the Lord. That is why God saves people. It isn't just to save them from danger, but it is to instill in them the satisfaction and glory and joy of what they were made to do. For we are worshippers. We were built that way. Our souls have the propensity to always worship. And when sin takes the place of God in our lives, we still worship. We just don't worship God. But we will find something to worship and something to praise and something to rejoice in. The gospel puts that right and brings the satisfaction and restoration of worshipping God, which is what we are designed to do. So that's how important worship is, and that's what the church is for. It is a worshipping assembly, a royal household, a holy priesthood, a spiritual temple. Now this uh, temple, this tabernacle, that is described for us here in Exodus 29, verse 38 and onwards, that we read about, that temple and tabernacle is a picture of the church. And God gave instructions for it to be built. Half of the book of Exodus is instructions on how to build this tabernacle. They were taken out, and the firstborn was slain, and the lambs were slain, and he appeared to them in Sinai, but it was all to reach this, that they might build a tabernacle in which God would be pleased to meet with man. That is what this picture is in Exodus 29. When we read that together, we're not reading about something irrelevant now in the New Covenant. This is a picture of the church. And though the physical parts of it all were done away with, all the spiritual things that are represented in what I read to you, they are still here. These things are just as important to me as a Christian as they were to a Jew. That is the picture that is portrayed here by God as he reveals himself to the Old Testament church and dismantles the physical things but leaves us, as Peter says, a spiritual sacrifice, a spiritual reality that teaches us about a God. Um, the whole idea of worship that comes through in the Old Testament and in this chapter is that something is to be offered to God. That's what worship is. Something is to be offered. In verse 38 of Exodus 29, this is what you shall offer on the altar to one-year-old lambs each day continually. Verse 39, the one lamb you shall offer Verse 41, the other lamb you shall offer. And if you read through Exodus, you'll see how often the word offer is used. And worship is an offering. If you wonder what worship is, maybe you think it's singing, reading. It is offering. You ought to come here on Sunday morning and Lord's Day evening to offer something. Because God is worthy of praise and honor and glory. And you must bring something with you. You can't come passively. The worship, biblically, is to offer something. Psalm 96 says this, Enter his courts with thanksgiving 
and bring an offering with you. First Peter 2 that we saw, he builds us up that we might offer to God spiritual sacrifices. That's what it's all about. We have to have a good definition of worship in our minds to understand what we're doing. There's a lot of confusion, as you know, about worship today. It's about feeling good. It's about making a good sound. It's about hearing something encouraging. Now, some of those things may be in it now and again, but that's not what it is. God is our king, and we are to bring him an offering. Especially when the relationship has been severed, and God has seen mankind remove itself, and they want to be reconciled to God in some way, something has to be offered. Something needs to be done to put the relationship right. I want to... um, I want to see with you a few things about what worship is, what kind of offering we are to bring as a New Testament church. But before I do, just notice how um, offering is central to worship in the Bible. When, When man first fell, the first thing God did when he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden was that he taught them, he, did, he made a sacrifice and clothed them, that was an offering, but he taught them to teach their children to offer to the Lord. And in Genesis 3, uh, 4, you see the first brothers, the first generation born in this wor- world, Cain and Abel, they were already offering something to God. So this has been part of worship since the beginning, and it should define and uh, help clarify for us what we are doing when we worship. You cannot go back to Eden and you cannot go to heaven and you cannot spend eternity with God unless something is offered. And Cain brought an offering and Abel brought an offering. Abel brought what God had commanded to offer, a blood sacrifice. Cain brought something else, but they both offered something. And you'll see how that becomes the church Abraham offered sacrifices. Job offered sacrifices. Jacob offered sacrifices. All the patriarchs did. And then when they come to Egypt and they become a nation and they're brought out, God gives them an extensive instruction manual on how to approach him and offer something. And marvelously, by the time the temple was built and Solomon built the temple, he is offering hundreds of thousands of animals to consecrate the temple on that huge altar that show the worth of God. I mean, these things don't, these things in themselves don't do anything. The fact that there were so many animals show that they couldn't do anything themselves, the offering of those animals. But the amount of them showed the worth of God, that these people were willing to give up all of these expensive animals. It showed how serious they were about being right with God that their animals would be killed and offered. And it showed that they were subservient to God, thankful to God, and that they wanted to be atoned for by God. It goes on and on and on. And into the New Testament, obviously the physical things of the offerings, they were done away with and fulfilled in Christ. But the New Testament church takes all that was represented there and it all becomes um, concrete and spiritual and established in the hearts of God's people in the New Testament. What was predominantly outward in the old fills with inward power in the new. And that's what Jesus told the woman of Samaria. She was concerned about if she came and found the Messiah, where should she worship? She's a Samaritan and she doesn't want to go to Jerusalem to worship. And Jesus said, soon, after my death, there will be no temple in Jerusalem or Samaria, because the temple will be the New Testament church, and that church was filled with the Spirit of God at Pentecost, and now every congregation is the same, and they all are bound together as one body, and they offer something spiritual to God. No animals, no incense, no curtains, none of these things, but all the beautiful things represented we are to offer. And let's see what they are. So, what can I say 
about this offering. I'm going to give you six uh, things here, six um, brief paragraphs to define worship for us. What kind of offering is it? An immediate offering. It's first of all an immediate offering. If you look um, at verse 42, and the end of the verse, I will be in the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will meet with you. And when I say it's it's an immediate offering, I mean that God is right there. That there is, there is contact and a connection. He's immediately before us. We are actually meeting with him. Worship is not a stadium or a large church or a small church um, that people are willing to attend where they, they probably sing, maybe say a prayer. I hope you know that there is such a thing as just saying a prayer without praying. Muslims do it. Jews do it. They, they pray at the Wailing Wall. Professing Christians do it. We say prayers, but that doesn't mean uh, we are praying. But we come to him in this immediate way. So those places can be filled with a, a song, a singing, a prayer, even someone explaining the Bible. But I want you to know in a Reformed church, as we seek God together, that I want more for me and you than that. That that we would have a clear view of what a liberating view of what scripture tells us is ours and that is that when he builds this tabernacle he tells Moses the reason it's here is that I will meet with you you don't sing in the tabernacle Moses you don't talk in the tabernacle with me millions of miles away I will come to this place and meet with you and that must be true of any true church and um, that comes prepared and comes actually to worship and to to give of their heart before the Lord. And it's an amazing thing that the Bible teaches us um, that can be true of our worship. It's immediate because when we worship in the new covenant age, we are still coming into the courts of the Lord. This tabernacle isn't just a tent, it's a, it's a royal court. It's a people on the run and their king comes to meet them in the royal court and the Ark of the Covenant is his throne and they have very expensive curtains and gold and angels and all of these things and very expensive perfume and linen garments and it gives this picture that they are meeting royalty and not just any royalty but the royalty when they come to that place. Now we don't have all the vestments and all these things, but when we come in Christian worship in the name of Christ to seek the Father in spirit and in truth, we are coming into the royal court of the King, just like they did in this tabernacle. Psalm 95, that other great psalm of praise says, come into his presence with thanksgiving and with loud singing. And when it says come into his presence, the the word in the Old Testament for that means to come before the face of the person. When God says in the Old Testament, I will bring you into my presence, the Hebrew literally means I will bring you before my face. That's what we're doing when we come into this place. And the pastor calls us to worship. We are, if we are in our right mind, We are coming before the face of God in his grace, in his mercy, in his holiness, and in his awful judgments in these things. We are coming before his face into the court of a royal king. And we are uh, to praise him as we come before his face and offer something because of who he is and what he has done his mighty creation, his mighty works of redemption, and his mighty act of redemption in Christ. These are all reasons to praise him. So we have come here tonight, maybe for different reasons, uh, with different things on our mind, but the scripture always makes me and makes you uh, consider uh, the direction that we go in spiritually, that we come to this place, to a royal court, 
and we come before his face to praise him for who he is and for what he has done. Moses knew that. Moses knew you couldn't play around in this tabernacle. Moses knew that you had to be careful in this tabernacle. But because if the priests didn't wash, if, if they didn't offer the right lamb, there was always a severe uh, intimation from God to show that he, he does value his worship, though he loves them. You'll know many people did wrong things in this temple and the Lord consumed them with fire. You remember that? We have to take stock of the immediacy of the fact that God tells the Christian here, I will meet with you there. And you are before my face. When the Westminster Assembly, whose confession is the foundation of our church, when they wrote their directory for worship, like the one we have in the RPCNA, when they give instructions on how to come into church and to worship, they said that the pastor should pray to let the people know of the awesome and glorious thing that they're about to engage in. And this is what they said. In all reverence and all humility, humility, we acknowledge the incomprehensible greatness and majesty of God in whose presence we do now appear and our own vileness and unworthiness to ever approach so near him and our utter inability within ourselves to do such a great work as worship him and to humbly beseech him for pardon, assistance and acceptance in the whole service to be performed. They used to instruct ministers on on uh, how to think about worship and, and to teach their congregations on how to worship. And it's that phrase in there that our utter inability to take on us, ourselves such a work. And there is a heresy in the modern evangelical church that it's easy and straightforward to worship God. It's even in the Reformed Church sometimes that it's as easy as going in, doing the things, and then leaving. How can it be straightforward to approach the God who burns up sin and who treats the blood of his Son as a holy thing? How can it be straight a relaxed thing to enter into the presence of such a God and to, with our own lips, praise him as he deserves to be honoured. And these Puritans knew we are unable to do such a great work. Now I'm going to say something in a couple of minutes about um, how God deals with that and that it's accepted in Christ. But we should... Uh, we should treat it as a great work, and we should never treat it as a routine, ever. It should never be that. And the fact that this is an immediate offering in which he meets with us, and that um, we appear before his face, it should put awe into our hearts. Our, our own RPCNA constitution says that. That all of God's people should enter his sanctuary with a sense of awe. Such a God that makes the whole earth tremble and whom the angels veil their faces before, we ought to be in awe of. And that means that we prepare before we come and it means that we meditate before we come and during and after to think about the significance of what we've done. If we visit this place in the same way we visit Walmart, there's a problem. We should never come unthinkingly and unprepared to offer something to God. Because we're about to see the thing we offer involves our mind and hearts. When we sing, it needs to mean something. We should be prepared to worship God and to come expectantly as well. If he says here, I will meet with you. You're not coming to hear Pastor Gunn and you're not coming even to see other people. You're coming to meet with God. Is that not an exciting thing? How expectant you ought to be. How much he has to give. You come to offer something to him. So it's an immediate offering. So it's, it's real. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's very real. And it, he is very present 
and that should be considered before we come. It's an immediate offering. It's a God-ordained offering. Secondly, you'll see throughout this passage that in verse 38 he says, you shall offer on the altar. Verse 39, you shall offer in the morning. Verse 41, you shall offer at twilight. Go into chapter 30, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a plaint for burning. Verse 2, its length shall be a cubit. Verse 3, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Verse 4, you shall make two rings. You see the point. All of this is commanded. It's God-ordained. It's a God-ordained offering. All Everything in the tabernacle was commanded by God. And all we do in worship must be God-ordained. It must be commanded by God. You can't bring anything to God, obviously. Cain thought that. Uzziah thought that. There are many others that thought that. We can't just bring anything to God. It must be what he's commanded and asked us uh, to bring. Um, This is what we call the regulative principle of worship. That we do what God has commanded. And we are not permitted to do anything else. There is another view. The normative principle. Which says if it's not forbidden. Then you're free to do it. So there are things that are done in worship. That people think because. And I understand the thought process. If God doesn't warn us against doing it. Then why can't we do it? So. If I want to have the children come up here in the middle of the worship service and tell a story, the Bible doesn't tell me not to do that. So why would it be a problem? Why am I not allowed to do that? Even though God doesn't tell me, don't do that. There's a huge problem with that. It opens a huge can of worms. Because basically, anything that men can think of that the Bible doesn't say don't do is then permissible. I could have a clown come up here and do a dramatic reading of a passage of scripture. And I could say to you, the Bible doesn't say that's wrong. Show me in the scripture where that's wrong. And no one could show me. That is a big problem in the church. And thankfully in our church, uh, we have, we have embraced the, the principle that we do what is commanded to be done. And that what we bring, we don't bring our own things to God, but we bring his word and we bring his uh, praise and uh, we pray according to his scripture and these things. So it's God ordained. Now what has he ordained? Well, in this meeting place where he meets with us, it's a real meeting and there's something that goes both ways when we worship. And you even think of it right now because we've gathered for worship. We offer praise even if it's imperfect. We offer praise. We offer prayer. We offer the hearing of the word. That's an act of worship. When the word is read and preached, you are doing something by hearing it conscientiously. That you are offering your attention to God. We offer our tithes and our gifts to God. And then when we leave this place and during it, we're offering an obedient heart to be willing to do what has been told to us in the worship of God. So we are offering all of that to God. He is doing something towards us. He is sending something to us. He gives us the reading of the word. He speaks. He gives us the preaching of the word. He speaks. He gives us the sacraments in which he speaks. And he he gives us his blessing and benediction in which he speaks at the end. That's worship. When he says, I will meet with you here and bring these lambs and bring this drink offering, we are giving praise and prayer and hearing and our tithes and our substance and our obedience, we're giving that to God as an offering. And he then speaks to us and preaches to us and blesses us in the sacraments and the benediction and all the grace that comes through all of those things through the reading, preaching, sacraments, etc. It's not just the hearing of them, but the Holy Spirit giving dynamic grace as these things are heard and received. 
All of those things are God-ordained offerings by the regulative principle and the second commandment in the Ten Commandments where God says, you shall make unto yourself no graven image or anything that I have not commanded. You shall not, you shall not alter the worship in any way. You shall only um, worship me according to what has truly been revealed and according to what I command. That all comes under the second commandment in which we go to God according to the way he tells us. So, it's a God-ordained offering. Uh, thirdly, it's a spiritual offering. All of these things here in our passage are physical, and I said earlier that they've been replaced by the spiritual truths that these things uh, were designed to teach. Uh, the tabernacle is a type of the church, and it has been subsumed by the Spirit of God, just as Jesus said in the New Testament, and as the book of Hebrews teaches, that all of these things have a Christian spiritual reality behind them. But it is a spiritual offering. It doesn't mean I don't need a lamb. It doesn't mean I don't need to give an offering, a grain offering. It doesn't mean I don't need incense. It doesn't mean I don't need a priest. I don't need this tabernacle and these priests and these lambs. But I need a lamb. I can't come to God without a lamb. Ever. God has never heard me without a lamb. Even as a believer, I must come by the lamb. The lamb who was once offered, but is a, he is there in the, the living present reality of that sacrifice by which he's consecrated the veil and he's opened up a new and living way, Hebrews 10 into the presence of the Lord. And Hebrews tells me I am to come with my heart sprinkled uh, with the blood uh, from an evil conscience and my body washed with pure water in sanctification. I must come like Aaron did, conscious of the Lamb, and I must wash before I come, spiritually. And I must bring my grain and my drink offering. I must have something to give. I must have the joy of the Spirit I must have an obedient heart and a willing heart. I must be willing to give myself to God when I worship him. And I need the incense too, which represents prayer. Pure, truly spiritual, God-wrought prayer that is that expensive incense that smelled beautiful, that was a symbol in the tabernacle of prayer. All these things must be brought, but they are now all spiritual Hebrews says, we have an altar, so let us now offer our sacrifice with the praise of the fruit of our lips. We don't bring grain or fruit to God anymore. It's just a symbol. But the apostle tells us in Hebrews that I now bring the fruit of my lips. I must sing, and I must sing like I mean it. And I must sing as God is worthy to be sung to. And I must give all the affections and love of my heart, the fruit of my heart and the fruit of my lips. I don't bring grain and corn and lay it before God, but I bring him the spiritual reality of all of that. That means that there must be depth in my praise and depth in my hearing with my whole soul and spirit. Because my spirit in the worship is meeting God's spirit. He is among us. He is present. And my spirit is coming to his spirit. And all of those spiritual affections and obedience must be there and ready to be given to him. For he is the Holy Spirit. Spiritual worship requires spiritual preparation. Spiritual worship requires spiritual focus. Spiritual worship requires spiritual praise. It's an immediate offering. It's a God-ordained offering. It's a spiritual offering. And fourthly, it's a pure offering. It's a pure offering. In here, in our passage, they're giving these lambs. And they couldn't bring any old lambs. They couldn't bring deformed lambs. The lamb had to be one year old in its prime. And it had to be inspected. And it had to be pure. You can't bring any old thing to God. Our worship has to have a purity to it. 
a sincerity to it and a singleness of heart in it when we come prepared and when we come spiritually exercised and when we have cleansed ourselves by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, but we are to live and to worship as a people that are holy and as a people that are continually being cleansed and mortifying sin and as a people whose hearts are truly engaged. If we are in a state of sin or apathy or lukewarmness or half-heartedness, God doesn't accept that worship, not in the way that we presume he does in our modern generation. Everyone assumes that God has kind of tricked himself into just accepting all of our worship. That there are churches where the worship is very bad and it's done for the wrong reasons in the wrong way. And people say, but it's all done through Christ, so it doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. And I'm going to say in my next point about how Christ purifies what we do. But our worship has to be pure in its outward form and as purest as it can be in its inward sense. We can't just not try in the Christian life and never pray and never really take stock and self-examine or deal with any sins and just keep coming to church um, expecting that it wouldn't make a difference. It will. Uh, Take, for example, I'm going to give you two passages to just leave us in no doubt on this. Um, In Isaiah uh, chapter 1, In Isaiah 1, he opens his prophecy. Well, God speaks through him, opening his prophecy. And it is a glorious uh, prophecy. And Israel's in a bad state. Their lives are no longer alive. They've become lukewarm and spiritually apathetic. And their, their hearts are beginning uh, to be unclean and to engage in idolatry and immorality of different kinds. The kind of thing that's winked at even in the church today as well, that's just, Christians do that. And they thought they were okay. Why? Because they were still bringing their animals. They were still offering their incense. They were still going to the temple. And God was still their God. And listen to what God says to them in Isaiah 1, 11. What are, the, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moon and the Sabbath and the calling of the assembly. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon and your appointed feasts. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, that's an awful picture, obviously. Um, and not everyone in Israel was out murdering people. It's just a church like Israel at that time that had just become contaminated. It says at the start of the chapter, there's no soundness in the body from the head of the, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot. Wounds and sores and putrefying sores, Isaiah says. Israel thought she was clean. Her priests were really clean with white linen and they washed and they gave the blood and they sacrificed the lamb and they went into the temple. But God said, that's the outward. Behind that, behind that, It's wounds and sores oozing, oozing bile over the body. It it is not clean. Israel has become unclean. And he says, I commanded you to bring lambs and to burn incense and to observe the new moon and to observe the Passover and all these things. And he says, it's all become weary to me. Why? Because they are not coming with a purity and a reality to worship. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi says something very similar. Malachi 1 verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. 
and you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Now you see what was happening there. They knew they had to live within the commands of God and bring these lambs and these offerings. That's what people do. People know my church expects me to be at church and to sing hymns, or my church expects me to be at church and observe the Lord's Day and to sing psalms. And we know what's expected and what is being commanded. But the Israelites, their hearts weren't in it at this point. The country was falling apart. And what did they start to do? They looked at all their lambs and they found the ones that, that were blind or that had a deformity or were lame and had something wrong with the leg. Something they couldn't sell. And they chose those lambs and brought them to the temple to give to God. Now we have to be careful we don't do the same thing. This is in us. It's in me. It's in you. God deserves the best. God deserves singing. God deserves hearing. God deserves attentiveness. God deserves meditation. God deserves a worshipful heart, a loving heart, a passionate heart for his worship, his name, and his gospel. He deserves for our whole being to be engaged in the thing. And we become apathetic like the Israelites did, and many people in the church are apathetic, and they kind of drag their feet to church, and they they kind of sing, or they kind of listen, and they put up with it, and then they leave. And God says, um, give that to your governor. Give that to the president. You know, if, if the president of the United States at any given time, whoever it might be, to say George W. Bush visited Meadville and he said he wanted to take a tour of the churches and we're good RPs and we, 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 um, we uh, respect the civil magistrate, so we would receive George W. Bush. He professes even to be a Christian. And um, if George W. Bush came in, uh, would there not be a lot of activity to make sure that he was looked after and there would be a lot of food made and people would be, you would, you would dress smartly or, and you would speak to him a certain way and show him respect and you would, you would be there before he would be there. You, you, look how unspiritual we are. It, the, our head knows that God is great, but our heart is just so sinful because we would probably honor George W. Bush more sometimes than we would honor God. Because if George W. Bush was speaking to you, you would listen to him. If George W. Bush arrived, it would be noticed. And the time would be noticed and all of these things. That's what God's saying to Israel. He's saying to the Israelites, and it's in mercy he's saying to them, you've gotten to the stage where you're actually trying, you are trying to rob me. You are trying bringing your diseased animals to me? Would you cook them and serve them to the governor? And you think, I will accept them. I will not accept them. Our worship mustn't be the lame, energyless, diseased parts of our time and our affections and our mind. We shouldn't exert our mind on what really we have passion for and then leave the dregs to God. Or use all of our time for our life and our recreations and our pursuits and leave the dregs for God. Or use all our energy, all our week. And Saturday is filled with all activity that we're passionate about for our homes and our families so, so that we can enjoy our life, so we say. And then we collapse into church on a Sunday morning because we have no energy left. We offer the lame sometimes. To God. I know that's difficult to hear, and I'm not saying you're doing it. I honestly am. I've done it. I think I've done it before in the past, even when I was the preacher. Make no mistake, we are sinners. And 
If we think we're good at worshipping God, we haven't even begun the kindergarten of getting into our relationship with God. If we think we're good at worshipping him, we just aren't. And we just don't give it all that it needs. It's fifthly a sanctified offering. And we're making our way to the end here. It's a sanctified offering. Uh, Verse 43b. It shall be consecrated, this place, by my glory. And in verse 39, we have these lambs. So this means that we come to have a real meeting with God. And we do it in the God-ordained way. And we are doing it spiritually and we've prepared. And we're trying not to offend God with the dregs or the the half-hearted approach that he doesn't accept. But we come, and we come with all our infirmities. We come with all our infractions and our weaknesses and our brokenness spiritually. Our praise lacks a perfection that Jesus was able to sing to the Father. Our prayers lack the perfection of Jesus' prayers. Um, Our hearing uh, sometimes it's just a phys- it's just physical. It's just difficult to listen, and all of these things. Well, these priests were to offer this lamb, and the reason they offered these two lambs was because Israel was sinful, and Christ has been offered. We have been redeemed to come in and be a worshiping people of God, and we must remember that Christ is over us, and He has been offered for our sin. He has sanctified the altar. He has sanctified the temple and the way into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, Hebrews says. And we can draw near with confidence, Hebrews says, and with faith. Let us draw near with confidence and assurance. His blood atones for sin and it sanctifies the worship of the repentant, contrite, seeking thirsty soul that is in desperate need of grace so you if you're an old christian you know the verse on him will i look he who is humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word you know the verse god responds to contrition he responds to humility When someone comes knowing their frailty, but with a real desire to offer the tribute of praise to the king, then it is sanctified by Christ. And the prayers of his people are sanctified by Christ. He is the priest who goes in from Israel representing them and offers up the incense to God. And the incense is pleasing, a pleasing aroma to God. Our prayers are purified in his prayers. He is our intercessor and his blood sanctifies that part of our worship and our praise. Psalm 22 says that he leads us in praise. That Jesus as the head of the church leads the redeemed above and us collectively as congregations in praise. He leads us. He sings. And by his spirit, we are moved to praise. So whenever we really lift up our voices and truly praise God because we're in awe of what he's done, it's actually the praise of Christ that's in us. We're praising with him. My praise shall be for you in the great congregational Lord, Christ says in that psalm. And that praise and those prayers and this gathered worship is Christ-centered, as it is in heaven, where they look on the throne and the Lamb is at the center, the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world. And here we are meeting God, and here we are trying to offer spiritual worship and trying not to offer the lame and trying to do it the, the way that God wants it. But we must do it through the mediator. We must do it through Christ. Because his blood will sanctify our worship. And lastly, it is a whole offering, an entire offering. Verse 42, it shall be a continual burnt 
offering. The, there, the burnt offering is a special sacrifice. Some of the sacrifices, part of the animal was put on and other parts were thrown away. Some of the sacrifices were just slain and then their bodies had to be put away. The burnt offering was when you took the whole animal and you put it on the altar and the entire thing was consumed with flames. This lamb represents Christ giving his entire self for us, but it's also instructive to show the kind of worship we ought to give. We are to give a whole burnt offering. The apostle says in the famous verse in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. I love it when Paul speaks about these things. Because he's talking from experience. He's saying that not only do we come in here to worship in the right way and give our hearts, our entire lives must be a burnt offering. Our entire bodies and souls and minds must be placed on the altar as Christians. And we must live as a sacrifice, fully consecrated only to him and not for the trinkets of this world. Paul did that. He gave it all up. And he laid himself on the altar as a Christian to the service of God. And we are to do the same. Our entire being, our mind, our affections, our work, our energy, our time, our connection to the church must all be there burning up as one sacrifice that is consumed with zeal and praise and dedication to Christ. And this chapter tells us that when they did offer the lamb, at the end of verse 41, it was a sweet aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. When Christ has sacrificed himself for us, and then we sacrifice ourselves on the altar and are burned up with the love and service and praise of God to be hot, to be burning, to be dynamic and fervent for God. It is a sweet aroma to God, though we're not perfect. These sacrifices please God. The lame and the blind sacrifices are a stench in his nostrils, even if it comes from a Christian. We must heed the call Paul gives. He beseeches us as brothers to put our entire life on an altar of worship and service and to be burned up with that. It is an immediate offering, a God-ordained offering, a spiritual offering, a pure offering, a sanctified offering, and an entire offering. Am I a worshipper? And are you a worshipper? Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's remain seated and pray before we close with us singing. Let us pray. Father, teach us how to worship you in spirit and in truth. Make us love your worship and to do it as your word reveals that we might be a sweet-smelling aroma before you. And as we open these things out in the next few weeks that a worshipping church a living sacrifice church will portray that to the world and <clears throat> be acknowledged by the world we pray that we would do this for to come to this place and to know that we have an opportunity to meet with the God of heaven and to hear his voice and to offer our praise to his name. What a glorious gift we have. And we are to proclaim it to the world. 
that the whole world may come to worship you. O Lord, we worship you now, and we ask that you would receive us, and that this week and the weeks to come, we pray for an abundance of grace to be poured out from your presence, from your royal hand, and that you would stir us up to burn as living sacrifices with a strength that is not human, but that comes from the Spirit of God. Make us bold in your service. And when we worship you like this, we pray that this place would be filled with people like the woman of Samaria, who had four husbands, and yet the Lord told her everything she ever did. And she said, come and see the one who showed me my heart. O Lord, you brought in the Samaritans, and we pray that through your worship you may bring in others too. For Christ's sake we ask it all. Amen.